You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Well, we've probably all been in a situation before where we realized we needed something and we just didn't have it. Remember as a kid, maybe you forgot to do a homework assignment? Do you try to do it real quick? Do you just acknowledge the truth? Do you make up an excuse? I remember one time, fifth grade, my teacher came to me. It was the big project for the whole year. I had done nothing on it. And I just, you know, I kind of thought in my head, like, well, the day before, I'll throw something together. It's like science project type thing. And then she comes, Mrs. Wilson, she comes. She says, Scott, do you have your project? I went, nope. She said, just nothing? I was like, nothing. That's what it was. Somehow I made it to sixth grade. I don't even know what happened. You ever, uh, ever been a, maybe your significant other looks at you and it's an anniversary and they've got a present, they've thought through it, and as they're handing it to you, you're thinking, it's our anniversary? Uh-oh. <laughs> you don't have what you need. Or you go to a party and you thought you were just hanging out with your friends and you realize it's somebody's birthday party. You're like, what's in the glove box? Like, what do I, I'm going to give a present here. You don't have what you need. What's worse is when you don't know your need and you don't have what you need to fill the need. There was an actress uh, several years back that some of you might recognize. Her name's Natasha Richardson. We've got a picture of her. She's in a lot of things. Uh, Sherlock Holmes TV show, different theater uh, performances, different films. Some of you might know her. You maybe watched with your kids Parent Trap. Disney redid that. She was the mom in Parent Trap. There she is with Dennis Quaid and twins of the same person. And then, uh, and... She was skiing in Canada, for those of you who don't know the story, and she fell, and she hit her head. The ski instructor, it was just a small slope, a beginner slope, um, thought that she maybe had hurt herself significantly, so he called ski patrol. She said, I'm fine, it's no big deal. They called the ambulance, she signed a waiver, sent the ambulance away, said, I'm totally fine. Called her husband, said, they're making a big deal about it, I just, I fell, sweetie, and banged my head. This is the quote that was for her. Two hours later, though, um, they had to call the ambulance again because she had a terrible headache. They rushed her to the emergency room. That hospital in that small town was not equipped for it, so they took her to another hospital 55 miles away, called her husband. Her husband's Liam Neeson, those of you who know who that is, uh, also a movie star. He said he showed up at the hospital. They didn't recognize him, which is probably great humblingness for a movie star. And, and uh, a nurse let him in a back door, though, and by the time he got to her, she was brain dead. It's only hours. She had a significant need. There's lots of arguments that happened after that. If they'd responded sooner, or if she had known, or what if this, and care flight instead of drive, and she didn't even know she had a need. So I was reading about it years later. It's what some doctors talk about, this lucid experience you can have when you hit your head like that, and what's happening is you think you're fine. You know something happened, but then you think you're fine, but in the meantime, blood is pooling up on your brain, and then the pressure gets so bad that it can cause significant brain damage, even death. I think about where we're at as a nation. I think we all know we got a problem. There's stuff that keeps happening. There's a shooting this week, Christian school, six people dead. Well, I think everyone, Christian, not Christian, that's bad. There's division in our country. Not as bad as civil war yet, but how does it go in your relationships? Like you talk to somebody and if they voted for somebody different than you voted for, all of a sudden you think they're an idiot and they're dangerous. They're gonna ruin you. There's no conversations anymore. We're divided. We know we have social problems. We argue about the solutions. We know there's inflation. We can argue about the solutions and the, and the number. Everybody knows it's more expensive to live than it was a year ago. I heard people joking about milk the other day when I was at the store. We've got a bunch of it, but... Uh, and then there's racism, we kill babies, 
all kinds of problems. Do we even know the real need, though? And do we have what we need? I don't think we do. Every once in a while, people ask me, will you teach on the book of Revelation? Are these the end times? And I think, well, you look at the circumstances and what's going on in our world and how do people, specifically younger generations, respond to authority? You're taught not to trust authority and so you implicitly don't trust authority and there's no doubt that we're greedy and we want more of whatever it is that we like and oftentimes it's money and sometimes it's pleasure and we love ourselves and we gotta find ourselves and help ourselves and all kinds of stuff about ourselves. Here's what the Bible says about the end times in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, Paul writing to a younger pastor, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and then how is this last part even possible? Having the appearance of godliness. How can all those things be true and then having the appearance of godliness but warning church but denying its power? Avoid such people. I read that this week and I thought, avoid them? What if we are them? Get away from myself. Like, I can't, it's hard. I'm going to read another verse. I like to read the Proverbs in the morning. Um, they're wisdom for life. The Net Bible says, Proverbs 30, verse 12, like this. There's a generation who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not washed from their filthiness. We are a nation in need. We don't know our need, I don't think, most of us. And we don't have what we need to meet that need. And today we're going to look at Judges, five chapters. Judges, don't worry, next week for Easter, bring your friends, only one verse. Uh, Judges, chapter 17 through 21. And uh, I bet you've probably never heard this preached. If you have, I'd love you to send me the message of it. Judges, chapter 17 through 21. We're going to see several stories. They're all bad. Um, Remember the context of the book as a whole, it starts bad. Judges, chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first part of the verse, after the death of Joshua. There's a leadership vacancy. Who's going to rise up? And then we see this theme, there's no king in Israel. But then there's these deliverers that come up. And sometimes people have preached judges like Samson was the only good example. So he had to grab Samson or, you know, whoever the different people. Samson, I mean, how bad does a nation have to be to want a materialistic, womanizing, egomaniac to restore greatness? <laughs> Samson, I'm talking about Samson. Don't email me. <laughs> Samson. Jephthah, we had Jephthah. Jephthah. Son of a prostitute. If you listen to Pastor Dave, we disagree on this. We still love each other. We don't agree on everything. We love each other. Can you believe this? If you listen to Pastor Dave preach Jephthah, he'll tell you that Jephthah committed his daughter to perpetual virginity. I think he killed her as a sacrifice because the text says burnt offering. So we argue back and forth about that, but we love each other. Either way, he's bad. But that's their deliverer. You got these leaders that raise up and either they're just like the people and they represent the people or this is who they are and that's what they lead the people to. No, no, no. But they got a true democracy because everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And God thinks it's evil. And that's what he says about it. And so you look at the passage here and it just, it gets bad, bad, bad. Judges chapter 17. We won't read all the verses today. There's just too many. But in chapter 17 and verse 1, what we see happening here is it's bad, and he doesn't even know it's bad, the guy that's mentioned in this passage. Judges, the last five chapters are not really a conclusion to the book. Samson was our last judge. He's dead. Now we're done with the judges. 
And then there's this appendix at the end. It doesn't advance the argument of the book chronologically. It doesn't fit at the end. What it appears that the narrator of this book is doing, putting at the end, is saying, and this is what this is like when this happens. And so there's really only one point in all. There's a lot of details. Messy story. I told one pastor, I was talking to him about the story. I said, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's worse, and it is. And I told him the story. He goes, that's in the Bible? I was like, he's a pastor. He's like, I can go read that again. I was like, yeah, you do. But no one, like, people don't talk about this. It's a scandal. It's like Netflix. If you're watching, you got, this is, this is called right here. It's got everything that everybody loves. Sex, murder, cover-up, hypocrisy, like, unawareness, like, just all kinds of, like, well, all the stuff that people want to binge, here. We don't talk about it. Why? Well, it's the Bible. We don't want people to know that's in the Bible. And then everything that's in the Bible is not endorsed by God. He's telling us, unfiltered, this is what happened. And at the beginning of the book, he said, you didn't get rid of the idols. I told you to get rid of the idols. Now I'm going to leave the idols and they're going to be a thorn in your flesh. Romans chapter 1, people know, everyone knows there is a God. Then they deny him. They think they're smarter than him. And he says, and that's my wrath. I'm going to let you have man with man, woman with woman, malice, disrespect your parents. Like you, that, you go with that and see how that goes. That's what's happened in Judges. In this story, there's a guy named Micah. He's not the prophet that's later in the Old Testament. It's a different guy. It says this, Judges chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man on the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, so he does not, he's not a Levite. Remember that. On the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you. Okay, so his mom got ripped off. She was robbed. About which you uttered a curse. Then she called a curse on the person who sold this stuff and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. <laughs> okay. That's not good. Stealing from his mom. His mother said, blessed be my son, by the Lord. What? Why? Why? And he restored the 1,100, so remember that number, pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver, so 1,100 pieces, to the Lord from my hand, from my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So, when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took, how many pieces did she have before? 200 pieces of silver. <laughs> okay, she didn't have to give the 1,100 pieces of silver. It's like Ananias and Sapphira. You didn't have to give all the money. But if you're saying you gave all the money, you're presenting yourself as more spiritual than you actually are. What you see through this whole story is a veneer of spirituality that's actually driven by the flesh. And gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image and it was in the house of Micah. And so he makes an idol to God. Does that sound like a contradiction to anyone? Anyone at all? There's ten commandments. First one, no other gods before you. Second one, no idols. Okay, so here we go. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons. He's not a Levi. can't ordain. Who gave him authority to ordain anybody, much less his son became his priest? In those days... And here's the point. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is so, like it gets more graphic as we go through this and more gritty when we keep going through this story. It's about five stories in these five chapters. This one then leads into the next one and then the next one and then there's a new. And then all those are bad. Every part of it is bad. 
Here's what's so bad about this. Think about the worst decision you've ever made in your life. Hired somebody that messed up the company. Married somebody and they weren't who you thought they were. Did, look, think about your worst decision. Okay. Could it be any worse than this though? You thinking that your disobedience is obedience to God and that the things that are happening around you are evidence of his blessing when what's actually coming is his wrath. And then for 60 or 70 years of your life, you live thinking that you've made the best decision of your life and you're going to spend eternity with damnation consequences. That's what we have here. That's this story. That's what's happening that to the reader, us, it can seem so obvious. But living it, Micah thought he and God were good. Mm. So what do we need? I'm going to propose to you that we need today intentionally offensive Christ followers. We are a nation in need, and we need intentionally offensive I was going to say leaders, but I think then we'd say it's like who we elect or who's the king and who's the... No, we're all leaders as followers of Christ, by the way. We're told to make disciples. Whether you have a position or don't have a position, leadership in the Bible is actually disposition. It's your disposition before God and then how you influence other... That's what leadership is, is influencing other people, how you influence other people. So even if you're 12 years old, you don't even have a job, much less a title for a job, you're called to make, go make disciples. So you are a leader at some level, whoever you influence. But here we'll just call it Christ followers because every Christ follower should be an influencer because we're all called to make disciples. And so what I think we're lacking are these intentionally offensive. Now what do I mean by offensive? (laughs) Do I mean that I come here and I offend you on purpose? I do that sometimes. The gospel is offensive, right? I mean... And my, my father-in-law used to tell me before I'd preach sometimes, he'd say, there was a poem that he'd quote to me. He was, preach me a sermon, preacher, but don't preach too long. Tell me the story of God's love, but don't condemn the wrong. It's like, there's a version of the story you can tell that everybody likes. But if you confront people in their sin and tell them about the wrath of God, I don't believe in a God with wrath, and I don't believe in hell, and I don't believe in Satan, and, I don't, and God is love. It's like, God is love, but that is not what, So that's offensive when you tell people that truth. Now sometimes, people, but today, like people just get offended by everything, right? Like, I could tell you today, my favorite color is blue, and somebody would email and say, why'd you say that? I can't believe it. And I'd be like, what did I say that was so offensive? Favorite color is blue. That can't be the thing. Don't you know there's colorblind people in the world today? Are you colorblind? No, but. And it's like, how do you have so much time to write emails? It's like. I don't mean that kind of offensive. When I'm talking about intentionally offensive Christ followers, I mean on the offense, on the attack, aggressive versus defensive, like in sports. There's an offensive mindset versus a defensive mindset, or in the military, an an offensive strategy, like you're going forward, versus a defensive strategy. Let's get the walls up. Now, many of us as followers of Christ have been taught defend the faith, stand firm in your faith, stand against culture, and that's a defensive posture. And that is true and that is biblical, but there's also an offensive posture. Go make disciples is an intentional go, just as the Father sent me, so am I sending you, Jesus says to us and his disciples. What was he sending? A rescue mission to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. 
So it's not, I'm going to go to Sola and just 6 a.m. pray if anyone wants to be discipled. Dear Lord, does anyone want to be discipled? Nobody's here. All right, I'm going to do my work. It's like, no, I'm going to go, going. Now our tendency, it seems, maybe because of fear, maybe because of lack of knowledge, I don't know exactly why, as Christians, is to gather together in our holy huddles and we get our, you know, book clubs and Bible studies and hang out with each other. You should be, they got to encourage the faith. Like there's an element of truth in that. But then we start our Christian sports leagues and our Christian coffee shops and our Christian, it's like, are you just afraid? Culture, you've made your own culture. And even as a Christian, someone's like, I don't even want to be a part of that culture either. It's like, what are we doing? We're supposed to be on the offense. I was reading this week in Matthew where Jesus is talking to Peter. They go into Caesarea Philippi, incredibly idolatrous place. Think about the idols that were in Micah's house. And there was uh, water that came out of this one area and we're going to go there. Those of you who are coming to, to, uh, to Israel with us and um, people called it the gates of hell. He says in that passage to Peter, on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, if you want to read the whole little section there. And a lot of times we think to ourselves, well, that means that we're defenders of the truth. Well, do you know that gates in Jesus' time were not an offensive, we're not defending from the gates of hell coming at us. Gates were, you put gates on the front of your city to keep the enemy out. We're the enemy to the kingdom of darkness saying that we are unstoppable, that as we go in, rescuing people out of there, that's an aggressive posture. Jesus, in the beginning of, of his ministry, he's healing people, he's doing miracles. His opponents don't argue that he's doing the miracles. They just say that the miracles came from the power of Satan. And Jesus then tells a story in Mark chapter 3. He goes, you can't rob a strong man's house unless you go into his house first, tie the strong man up. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm taking what he thinks is his. They're my kids. It's aggressive, it's offensive. And some people don't want to talk about it because they think, well, that's what leads to a crusade and there's going to cause some war, physical violence. No, no, no. Remember, we don't battle against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. This is a spiritual battle that's taking place. And we're going to battle, and I'll point it out to you throughout this message as we walk through some of these stories. Sin, Satan, and sometimes our most dangerous enemy, self. Here, the problem for Micah is that he's doing what he wants to do. He's fashioned a God in his own image. There, I think if you asked Micah to tell us this story, it'd come across like a, a Christian best-selling book. There's a good version of this. My mom had been ripped off. It was a lot of money, 1,100 pieces of silver. It was me. And then I went to her and she forgave me and it's a story of reconciliation and we're back together and these, these Christian themes. You know what's lacking? Real Christian content. There's no real repentance. He's afraid of consequences. She called down a curse. There's no turning. I felt guilty. No. She called down a curse. And then, oh, it's my son. No, a blessing. And then we worshiped God. Ah, uh, except the way you did it is explicitly forbidden by him. But we were sincere. So What? He specifically states to you not to do this. But it gets worse. Because in the next part of the passage, remember he made his son, who's not a Levite, a priest. We know that he knows the Bible. 
because a Levite shows up at his house, which we could get into all that. The Levite shouldn't be there either based on where he's supposed to be working and how he's supposed to be paid. But the Levite shows up. We don't know why, don't know his story. So I can't condemn him or say it's understandable. But he's not supposed to be there. He shows up. Then they cut a business deal. Micah says to him, um, we'll be like family and I'll pay room, board, and you'll be my priest. But we know he's not a good priest. Later, we're going to find out he's only in it for the money because he leaves for a better deal. But right now, what we see is if he were a good priest, a representative of God to the people and the people to God, that's what a priest does. All of us are priests if you're a New Testament follower of Jesus, by the way. What he would have done is he'd gone into the house, seen his idols, and come back out and gone, my God, we gotta, I know it's the first day on the job, but we need to have a talk. There's these commandments. There's 10 of them. I'm talk about him for if you heard him because he knew that he knew that he was supposed to have a Levite as a priest and we know that from verse 13 look at what he says then Micah said now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest oh man you think God's blessing you right now some of us are so short term in our thinking that we interpret God's moving and working to bring wrath into our lives as blessing. And we think he's using our disobedience to bless us? We have a significant misunderstanding of God. A lot of this looks Christian. Here's what you need to know. Not everything that looks Christian is Christian. That's true with books. Not every book in Barnes and Noble under the spiritual section is Christian, just so you know. Or on Amazon. It can even have a Christian author. They can quote verses and it not be Christian. We have... Churches that are now arguing about why we should promote things that God specifically forbids. Does it sound like this? Whole denominations splitting over this. Homosexuality. And then you go to conservative churches and you're like, I don't know if I can find Jesus here either. I know who they voted for though. I know they use that name Jesus, but that is not what I'm reading about here. We got problems. And then something happens that we, it fits our agenda, it's what we want, it's our, your God is your stomach, Paul says in Philippians. And we go, God's blessing us. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> maybe, or maybe it's part of the curse. Anyway, so the priest should have gone into the house and been like, we got to get these idols out of here, but he wasn't fighting. And so we see we have a leadership problem still. That's the picture God's giving us. It's not just that Joshua was dead. There are no leaders. Everyone, it's real democracy. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Micah, the priest, and then it gets worse. Uh, in chapter 18, a group of folks come in and they're from a tribe, an Israelite tribe called Dan, and they give him a better deal, the priest. Hey, what, you got to rule over one guy's house? You could be over a whole nation. You could be the spiritual leader of this whole nation. And then they take Micah's idols and then they make a better deal with the Levite and Micah gets mad and he chases him down and he says, you took everything I have. If there's anything in your life that's part of creation that if you lost it, you would have lost everything, now you know your idol. So that's where this guy's at. The God you made is devastating for you to lose? How about the God that made you, Micah? He doesn't get it. Not fighting the first one, sin. We are in a battle with sin. The book of Jude, Jude says this. 
You should tell somebody. I read a whole book of the Bible this week. Jude. There's one chapter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. This is part of God's wrath. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So you got this priest in this house. He's not battling sin. There's sin right in front of his face. Sin is the first thing that we should be battling against. He should have gone into the house and been like, we're getting that stuff. We're doing a renovation, Micah. Can you imagine that as an HGTV show? They're always looking for ideas. Maybe one of you will write HGTV and say, you know what? What about the spiritual renovation show? And you get like some really handsome prophetic guy to come on there. And because, that, you know, they're carpenters. It's like, I've met a lot of carpenters. I've never met a guy who looks like this. And there's a perfect jaw and a hair and all this stuff. And some supermodel wife who like does the designs, right? So get some like super handsome prophetic guy and his supermodel wife. And they'll come into somebody's house and be like, all right, let's look around. We're going to check your internet browser. Whoa, 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 whoa. What you been watching on Netflix? Hey, hey, hey. I think we got some work to do. Bible says... Where your money is, there your heart will be, not the other way around. So let's look at your bank account. And I bet there'd be lots of rationalization. You know what reality TV loves? Conflict. See, what some of these shows, love it or list it, they're always trying to get the people to fight. It's like fake fights, I feel sometimes, right? Like, they both want to sell this house, is what I watch and think. But at any rate, I think there'd be physical fights if you sent. So the prophetic guy better be ripped too. Like he better like get some guy that he was a seal. Now he's a supermodel and he's prophetic for Jesus. It's like, find that guy. Here's your show. Everybody else would love it. The people on it, like I'm not signing up. Like who wants that? If the priest were worth his salt, that's what he would have done. Because we're supposed to be fighting, all of us fighting sin. 17th century theologian John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He wasn't talking about the sins of culture or your spouse or anyone else. He's talking about fighting your own sin. Paul, I don't, I don't do the things I want to do that are good and I do the things I don't want to do that are bad. And We're all in a battle with this. And so you have to be offensive, aggressive on the attack. Pastors, sometimes they'll, talk, they'll teach Ephesians 6, great passage on spiritual battle. It's the one I was referencing when I said we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against a spiritual battle, the angels and demons and principalities. And you go through the armor of God and then they'll say at the end, I disagree, I think there's two offensive weapons, prayer being the last one, but they say, there's only one offensive weapon. So here's what I'd say, but there's one. I'm talking about the Bible, the truth. And so here, what we have is, we've got these false pictures of what God is like before these people. And then, you think it's not that big of a deal? Micah, you think it's no big deal that in your house you had your own private altar to Yahweh that he told you not to build, but you named it after Yahweh, and so it's like maybe he'll understand at the end, but you know some Bible, but apparently you don't know the commandments, and what's happening here? Well, the Levites should know. Oh, by the way, the reason why the tribe of Dan is even there is because of the disobedience in chapter 1. That's why they don't have a land. The reason why all of them are experiencing any of this is when Jesus showed up in chapter 2 as the angel of the Lord and said to them, I've kept my covenant, I'm your deliverer, I brought you out of Egypt, I've been faithful to you, I told you to be fully obedient, get rid of all the idols, you think you know more than me, the idols are staying. 
and they will be my wrath in your life. And they repent. And when he calls, or when we call, he answers. He comes. There's always a path to renewal. And then it says a couple verses later, there rose up a generation who didn't know the Lord. But have you found it interesting that in every chapter, when it gets bad enough, they cry out to him? They don't know him, but they know of him. But when he is not the God that they've created, they turn from him and repeat the cycle. Like Palm Sunday. Like many of us know. And they're not fighting. And this is what they get. Dan shows up. They take the idols. And you think, you think your sin happens in secret. It's not going to hurt anybody. Micah, I don't know if he even knew that it was sin. I don't know that. But I think if he knew that it was like maybe a little bit wrong, he was like, but who's it hurting? It's just here in my house. Well, after it gets stolen, what happens is this priest is the priest for the nation and uh, the whole tribe, this whole section of the nation, Dan, starts worshiping this idol for generations. People that Micah doesn't even know, that he can't know exist because of his sin, the ripple of, you think your sin happens secretly, it's never hidden. You may have done it in isolation, it is not isolated. You might think you can hide it, that'd be the worst thing for you. And then you cover it up with God talk, and that's how you get association with Jesus without submission to Jesus, which is our great problem today. And here, they're not fighting, they're not being offensive, and there's a ripple effect. There always is. Believer or not believer, this is a universal truth. This is how sin works. Remember? Do you remember when Tiger Woods um, got caught cheating on his spouse? Does anybody here remember? He got divorced, if you don't remember that. Anybody here remember what that cost him financially? What the cost was? Anybody here remember? Think so. 300 million? It was, about, it was over 100 million. They know for sure. She, you know, there was a house that she got that was 39 million, just one house in Florida, and a bunch of luxury sports cars. And um, the estimate is for sure that. And then he lost a bunch of sponsorships. So you might be right, because he lost a Nike sponsorship at the time, and Gillette, and um, Gatorade. Remember that? And there's been financial analysis done on all this. Like, there's obviously the court paperwork of exactly what was handed to her, but then there's other implications. Well, a few years after it happened, the University of California did a study to see not how much did Tiger lose, but how much did people who invested in the companies who had partnered with Tiger lose? People he's never met. Any guesses on that number? It's somewhere between five and 12 billion dollars. Okay, that's just money. We haven't talked about, I don't know Tiger or his kids. I can't imagine this was good for their relationship. He certainly lost his wife. I don't know what else, but the caught, listen, it will, you can look at, I don't think, I don't think Tiger probably, again, don't know, don't know him, probably in a lustful moment wasn't thinking, well, if I get found out it's going to cost me a hundred million, I can do that. When we think about our sin, we always minimize it. The cost is always greater. The consequence is always more significant. We've got to fight it. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And we have an enemy, Satan, who's at work. The king of darkness. The god of this age, he's called in the New Testament. How well do you know your enemy? Let me ask you that question. 
And I understand, like I've been around church world long enough to, I've heard the illustration, do you know what counterfeiters do? And then counterfeit people that find it, they just take the $100 bill and they, they master the real one. And then they understand, no, well, that's somewhat true. You don't think that they actually know what the latest counterfeits that are out are? You can Google it and find out, by the way, if you want to find out. Like, it's true. I don't, pastors aren't misleading you, but it's just not the whole story. And I get it. We only get so much time to share. You've got to know the enemy, too. Just think about, think about sports. Many of you are sports fans. Not just pros, but even in college now. Think about, isn't that funny? Because college sports for the student, they're student athletes, right? Like, it's just extracurricular beyond the curriculum activity, right? Some of you are looking at me like, does he really think that? Oh. Some, some of them are this. They have analytics departments to watch the other team, to watch the game as a whole. Where should we take shots from? Three-point line. Where's the most effective? Who on our team and when they're guarding? And, and in these scenarios, scouting departments? It's not just for the draft. Scouting, continue, scouting your opponents that you're not even playing so you know who's on their roster and you know what their contracts are and you know that they know their enemies well. Their opponents... Malcolm Jenkins, he's a defensive back. He played for the Eagles. He played for the Saints. Who that? Some of you. Fly, Eagles, fly. I'll see you there. He said that in addition to the film study they were required to do, in addition to the time and practice and all the stuff he spent at, the, at work, he would watch three hours, two to three hours of film a day on his own. Study himself, study his opponents. He wanted to know. If an offensive lineman's leaning a little bit forward, does that a tell that they're going to run a run play? If his knuckles aren't white, is that going to pass play? Now, what do I do in this scenario? He's watching himself. He's watching his opponents. Deion Sanders said, I used to study teams, but I want to know the coordinators because the faces of the players change, but the tendencies of the coordinators stay the same. That's a, let me just remind you, like I'm being serious. Now, it's a game. Like I know a lot of money is exchanging hands. It's a game. Not practice. No, it's like the game. It's a game. But it is still just a game. What if life and death is that? Do you know how much money the you, just one country, that we spend spying on other countries? I don't know if we float balloons over them or not, but we spend publicly, it's, you can Google it and find out, $90 billion last year. That's, I don't know if there's like other line items and stuff, but for the line items that go, for the intelligence community, $90 billion. We have over 100,000 spies and foreign assets. And you can read things that have been declassified that we've tried to do. There's, there, there, back in 2006, we actually tried to take sharks, put electrodes in their brain, remote control, control them so they could swim next to vessels and we could listen to conversations. Like, I can't even get my dog. When I take my dog and try to clip his nails, he bites me. <laughs> like, can you imagine putting electrical probes in a shark's brain? I'm not signing up for that. It was recent, it was like 2017, Iran arrested 14 squirrels. <laughs> Serious, Google it, I'm making this up. And said that they were American intelligence assets. Recording devices in them. How do you control us? Have you seen a squirrel? My goodness. Anyway, we're spending a lot of money, a lot of intelligence, a lot of time trying to know the enemy. Do you know yours? He got a plan for your life. He wants to steal and kill and destroy you. He's like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. He's coming for you. Do you know his language? Oh, if you want to be in the CIA, you better learn the language of our enemies. You know what Satan's language is? Lies. We're not, we're not battling flesh and blood. There's battles going on in our minds, in our hearts. I, pro I promise you, 
He's not omnipresent and all-knowing. He uses demons to do that. There's a spiritual warfare. Principalities, demons in the air around us, they know your weaknesses. Do you know your weaknesses? You do. It is true. Like, know the, to know the counterfeit, know the real thing. Got to know the truth because that's what you're going to combat the lies with. But some of you are more susceptible to certain lies than I am, and I'm susceptible to certain lies that you're not. And do you know your weaknesses? Study. We're in a battle. Knowing that is part, part of being offensive is to know where they're going to attack you and to know who they are. But the most dangerous probably is this last one, self. And we see in chapters 19, 20, and 21, I won't read you in any of these verses, but here's what happens in 19, 20, and 21. Um, there's a Levite. They're supposed to be priests, right? A Levite and his concubine, pause, have a marital falling out. A concubine is a second wife or a third wife. or a fourth. It's not your primary wife. It's like a second, less rights and all those things. A Levite and his concubine. Nobody's supposed to have a concubine, okay? It's not just Levites. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his mother, father, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's not just a verse to say that homosexuality is wrong. Polygamy is wrong too. Any fact, any romantic relationship, physical or otherwise, outside of the marriage relationship is a sin. This guy's supposed to be a spiritual leader is the point of him being a Levite. This Levite and his concubine have a falling out. She goes and cheats on him. He goes to the dad's house. They get drunk every night, make a deal. She's never part of the conversation, by the way, if you want to see how she's objectified because in a society where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, the strong survive. And if you don't have a voice and you aren't strong, you will be abused. It doesn't matter who's in charge. That's what will happen. That's what's the point of these passages, by the way. Here's what happens when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. They cut a deal. He gets his concubine back, takes her on a road trip. They stop at an Israelite town. This is why it's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the town come and say, we want to have sex with your guests, other men. And a lot of times that we, that's the passage people go to and like, clearly, you got any wipes out? Do you know that they don't actually... Angel makes everybody blind, then wipes out the whole. Read this. This is why this doesn't get preached. Because what happens next is these men, these twisted men come and say, we want to have sex with the Levite. Now, it's a big deal to have hospitality, and you're responsible when you're hospitable to somebody else in this culture to protect them and provide for them. Apparently not the women, though. Because what the elder who comes out, who should also be a leader, he says, no, you can't do such a, he knows it's a wicked thing. Here, take my virgin daughter and his concubine and you can do whatever you want with them. And they do in this passage all night. Apparently, though, the Levite slept fine. The next morning he gets up and he talks to his concubine whose hands are on the threshold of the front door, but she's motionless and he talks to her like an animal. Get up, let's go picks her up, puts her on the, we don't know if she's dead yet, puts her on his animal, takes her home, cuts her into 12 different pieces, sends it to the 12 different tribes. For the first time, we see that 11 of the tribes are unified with one another. That's what brings unity, a common enemy. Another Israelite tribe, the Benjamites. And he goes to the Benjamites, and the Benjamites won't hold anybody accountable. They say, give us the people, not the whole place, the people who are responsible for this. No way. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. How are we going to hold? Who's to say? And you don't know. And so they don't do anything. So it creates a civil war. 
tens of thousands of people die. Read it on your own. And then, oh, by the way, Saul, they had no king, right? Saul, when he's a king, guess what tribe he's from? At the end of the thing, they say, they killed it, they get it down to 600 men in Benjamin, and then they go, whoa, 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 we're going to destroy a whole tribe of God's people. And then they cry out to God as if he's responsible. How, how can this happen? I'm going to tell you, it's like if my kids burned my house down today and I got home and they're like, how did this happen? I'd be like, you burned the house down. I'd be like, yeah, but you gave us the matches. I'm like, I told you, the matches, you're not supposed to touch them ever. They're for s'mores. All right? That's why you, probably how you found them. You found the Hershey bar, then you grabbed the matches, and then you took gas. It says, warning on the side, warning label, what gasoline does. You're blaming me? What do you think God's thinking? You want me to come fix a problem you caused and you're blaming me for the problem you caused. And you did it in my name. Oh, man. That's why the whole point of all of that content is this. I'll just read you a few verses from uh, several of the chapters. Uh, in chapter 17 and verse 6, after we see Micah in this ridiculous situation that he's in, it says here, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then chapter 18 and verse 1, there's no king in Israel. Chapter 19 and verse 1, there's no king in Israel. The book ends with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the biggest enemy was self. I was reading um, on Reddit the other day about security cameras and different things, and this guy said his neighbor came to him and said, there's been some noise in your backyard lately. Have you heard it? The guy hadn't heard it. So he decided to buy some security cameras. He put them in his backyard. He said the first night, somebody came into the screen. It was some guy who's wearing combat boots and boxer shorts, and he stared into my bedroom window for 45 minutes. It's pretty creepy, isn't it? He goes, well, I got good footage of him, so I was able to zoom in and see his face. It was me! <laughs> the guy had been sleepwalking and didn't know it. <laughs> then he said, he said on there, he goes, I'd have felt way more comfortable if there was some creep out there. He says, now I'm wondering, where else have I been? I don't know what's happened here. See, the problem, the problem that's being pointed out here is everyone does what's right in their own eyes, then who's responsible for their problems? Them. So you can say whatever, you can name whatever idol you have, Jesus, if you want. I can call my dog Babe Ruth. Doesn't make him good at baseball. You calling your idol Jesus doesn't mean that's who you're worshiping. That's what's happening through here is they're, they're going Yahweh and they're, built, they're doing things that are specifically even forbidden by him, then claiming he's blessing them for it and then doing stuff that even pagans don't do. Like the crazy part of this last chapter is that was a Canaanite village and it happened and God still wiped them out. Now you're doing it and he's going, and my wrath is, I'm gonna let you do it. In his name. That's what he would want based on whatever I think is right. But what does he say? I remember when I was struggling with anxiety, I was meeting with a counselor pretty regularly, and I told him, I said, one of the biggest struggles I have is while I'm praying. I said, maybe it's a spiritual thing. He said, yeah, maybe. He's a Christian. I said, do you believe in that? He said, yeah, but find a demon in every shadow if we want to. I said, we're going to work on you. I'll tell you right now, that's a lot harder. It's an 18th century evangelist that was asked, what do you think we need for revival? And he said, I think everybody who can hear my voice when he's being interviewed should go home and grab a piece of chalk, 
draw a circle on the ground, stand in it, and then pray, God, will you revive everything inside of this circle? Let's pray. Father, we know when we cry out to you, you come. We know no matter what's happening in every person's life that hears these words today, 10 years from now, whenever, there's a path to renewal. No matter how far gone we think we are, our marriage is, our reputation is, our whatever, you can renew. Will you do that? Will you do things I could never guess, ask, or imagine? Renew minds, renew hearts. Stop having us be conformed to this world as a church, individually. Will you, as if there were a circle around me, or maybe you pray that too as you're praying, will you revive and renew me? Will you help me to love you more than I ever have before? Will you help me to see and be disgusted by my sin? Not to minimize or rationalize it, but to turn and run from it and to run to you. Thank you for being a father who runs to us open arms of restoration, of renewal. You say you make all things new. I pray you'd make that word all significant to somebody here today. You say that we battle against principalities, darkness. Some of us aren't even aware that we've let the demonic in. And I pray with your authority against those things in the name of your son, Jesus. I pray that you would break chains and set people free, open eyes to see that you'd supernaturally do things that your spirit's never done in the lives of people that it needs to be done in before. Whether that's born again, that's a filling of your spirit, whether that's a transformation by your spirit, help us to see things we couldn't see before. Will you do supernatural things that I couldn't guess right now? Healing, physical, spiritual, emotional, from past. I think about how these women are treated in this passage. There's some people who hear that. and Why didn't God just stop the abuse? Why didn't he just stop the... There was wickedness taking place. You didn't stop us from sinning when we lied this week or proud or but you hold it all accountable and you're there. It's not hidden. And you can heal. I pray you'd bring healing for people that wish you would have stopped something evil that happened. We show them that you see and that you care and that you're present and that you restore. And Father, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to include this prayer in a second, but don't stop working. Please don't stop working. God, will you, will you do a work that goes beyond a closing benediction or a drive home in the car? Will you stir and change and don't let us ever be the same again as a result of these moments praying to you? And you stay praying if you need to stay praying. But I'm going to, I'm going to ask Pastor Bryce to come and, because I think Jesus would pray these things. I'm going to pray in his name this place. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.